The following audio is from Downtown Church, a multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. It's, it's a pleasure to sit under the word of God. And so Michael Rhodes is going to be um, leading us through the word this morning. And we're excited that he uh, has the opportunity to do that. But he is, I want you to know, a member of our church. And God has gifted not just Richard and I, but other people in the body uh, to open the word and to declare the word of God to the people of God. And so we're incredibly excited about him. Michael Rhodes is working on a Ph.D. right now. In fact, uh, he was just somewhere in Europe, I don't know exactly, um, he was traveling probably for about 24 hours, and so um, y'all give him grace this morning. No, I know he's gone. Uh, I know the, I know he's uh, going to do incredibly well. So um, after we go to the Word of God, uh, Michael Rhodes is going to come up and share with us. So let's now go to the Word. This morning we're reading from John 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman came from Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is asking you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir... Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw more water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But oh, sorry. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? 
So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the raper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans came from the town and believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And so I want to start by telling you about uh, my personal worst missionary moment. Uh, Some of you will know that I spent two years in Kenya with my wife, Rebecca, being a missionary. And um, one day, while we were out on the road, we were driving. And if you can imagine me driving along, and I'm about to make a left-hand turn across traffic, right? So I slow down, I start making my turn, and a Kenyan woman hits the front of me from behind, which means that as I was turning, she was whipping around me so fast that she managed to get to the front and ripped off the front of my bumper, and we both ended up in the uh, in the side there. And, um, you know, uh, I want to start out this, this uh, sermon by making a confession, because I don't remember what the first 15 words that I said to her were when I got out of the car, but I know that every single one of them had four letters in it. At the top of my lungs, we began just shouting horrible things at one another. And in Kenya, having a car accident is a a dangerous thing because everybody crowds around. If anyone gets hurt, they might hurt you. And uh, the police kind of decide, you know, based on a popular consent, it's like in uh, Gladiator, you know, they sort of look to the crowd, see which way them goes, decide whose fault this is. This woman somehow thinks it's my fault, and I am just livid. I am livid. And I I called my pastors who were around the corner who are Kenyan, and I said, you've got to come help me and make sure I don't get you know, uh, ruined here. And so they came, and there was all this shouting. And at, at some point in the middle of this, I looked up and I saw, you know, my pastors are, you know, you know we're all talking, I'm doing my best in Swahili, and they're all, you know, ponte. And I, I realized that I was winning the battle and losing the war because I was going to get off okay on the car, but I was being the worst witness for Christ imaginable. And as I drove home that day, realizing that I was literally the worst missionary ever, I traded my birthright as a missionary for a a pot of my car not being at fault. Uh, I started wondering, what is mission all about? Do I even belong here? What's God doing? And why in the world would I have expected to be a part of this? Fortunately, it wasn't the only time before or since that my own failures to be like Christ in his work, have made me ask questions about mission. So let's look this morning to John 4. uh, And as we do, we're going to see at least three things. We're going to see that Jesus' mission goes to unexpected people. 
we're going to see that Jesus' mission recruits unexpected missionaries. And we're going to see that Jesus' mission has an unexpected purpose. Let's pray. Jesus, may your word go forth in power, not because of me or anyone in this room, but because you long to make yourself known to your children. Would your word go out and not come back empty, but reap a harvest of righteousness in our lives? Amen. Jesus' mission in John 4 goes to unexpected people. If you've been a Christian, you've heard people say this sort of thing before, but it's worth repeating. When Jesus shows up at the well in the middle of the day to meet with a Samaritan woman, if you are a Jew, you are wondering what is going on. Because if you're a Jew in Jesus' day, you know that this Samaritan woman is wrong on every count. She's wrong on every count. She's the wrong race as a Samaritan, she's the wrong gender as a woman, and she's the wrong sort of person because she's had five husbands and she's cohabitating with someone who's not her husband. Now, to unpack a little bit uh, why this is all so bad, you know, the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. Um, I think part of the reason why they hated each other is because they were kind of halfway kin. Uh, you know, sometimes we hate most the people who are close to us, who are almost us, i got two friends who have had the experience, maybe some of you have had it, of meeting their fathers for the first time very late in life. And when they showed up to meet their fathers for the first time, their newly encountered half-brothers and sisters hated them and attacked them and, and, and just went after them. Why? Because you are almost us, but not quite. And therefore, you're a threat. And the Jews and the Samaritans were cousins whose ways had parted a little bit, and they hated each other. Not only were they the wrong race, they were the wrong religion. The Samaritans had about half of the Jewish Bible. So they had the wrong Bible. They worshipped in the wrong spot. They were claiming to know the God of Israel, but they were doing it the wrong way. And so the Jews hated them. And then as a woman, uh, in particular, there was this issue of the Jews worrying that Samaritans would make you unclean. Now, uh, the, the rabbis later on would say some really nasty things about Samaritans. I'm not even going to tell you uh, what exactly they said, except for to tell you that the, the point was, a Samaritan woman is always gross and unclean, and if you get near her, it's going to rub off on you, and you're going to be unclean, and then you won't be able to worship God, you won't be able to be with God's people, so watch out for a Samaritan wo- a woman. They, one, one person even said, if, it's, if one Samaritan woman has even been in a town... You can get unclean just by coming after her and being in that town. So Jews hated Samaritans. They, they hated Samaritan women. And then there's the issue that everybody in the ancient world would have said, what a sleaze bucket this woman is. She's had five husbands. Good heavens. I mean, even today, by the time you get to a fifth, a fifth husband, we'd be saying, golly, what's going on? And then she's cohabitating. I mean, this woman is, is like the worst. And it showed up. Because she's at the well by herself in the middle of the day. Uh, when I lived in Kenya, I was near villages and places where women would go together to get water. And you'd go together, and you certainly wouldn't go in the middle of the day when it was hot. This woman's alone. The reason why she's alone is because her sin has made her an outsider. This woman is an unexpected recipient of Jesus' mission, but Jesus goes right for her. He goes out of his way to woo her to himself. 
And we can see this in at least two ways. The first is, uh, and Craig Keener put me onto this, but if you were a Jew and you knew the geography, when it says uh, there in verse whatever, it was necessary for Jesus to pass through Samaria, you'd know that geographically that wasn't actually true. There were other ways to get there. In fact, most Jews preferred to go around. So as Craig Keener points out, to say that Jesus had to go through Samaria wasn't true geographically, but it was true missionally, because Jesus was coming after this woman. And you'd notice it even more if you were hearing John tell this story, uh, first off, if you were a Jew, because there are other clues about Jesus' intention right out of the gate with this woman. You know, um, we have ways in English of like saying, like, hey, you know what kind of story that is going to be that I'm about to tell, right? For instance, if I say, like, you know, once upon a time, you're expecting kind of a fairy tale, bedtime kind of a thing, right? Even if I said, you know, uh, I'm going to tell you a story about a uh, young girl wearing a red coat in the forest visiting her grandmother, you know to look out for the wolves, right? I'm talking about Little Red Riding Hood. Well, in, in the Jewish day, in the Jewish day, when a Jew shows up at a well and meets a woman, you would not be able to avoid remembering that it was at a well that our ancestor Moses sat down with a foreigner and found his wife. It was at a well that Abraham sent his servant to meet his, his son's future wife. And it was Jacob, whose well this is, who first encountered his wives at a well. In other words, you know that this is a wedding scene. Which puts it in so much more contrast that the sinless Jewish teacher has come here to woo a licentious, sinful woman from the wrong tribe. And the wrong religion. Jesus' mission goes to the most unexpected people. Not by accident, but by design. If we're reading John, we know that in chapter 2, Nicodemus came and ran into Jesus, the missionary. And Nicodemus was the opposite of the woman. He's a Jewish teacher. He's a really good guy. He's a part of the leadership. He's a pastor. This is the kind of guy we want on the team, right? And this guy comes to Jesus, whereas Jesus goes to the Samaritan woman. He comes at night, whereas Jesus goes to the Samaritan woman during the day. And whereas Jesus ends up telling this woman, I am the Messiah. This is it. He leaves the Jewish teacher in the dark. And the scene ends with us wondering what's going on with Nicodemus. By design, Jesus goes after the unexpected. And the first thing I want to say to you is that it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, what your status is in the community. All of us are being wooed and sought after by Jesus. If you are worried about the sinful choices you've made in your past, maybe maybe uh, sexual decisions that you've made, maybe broken relationships with your family, Maybe criminal decisions. Maybe decisions that nobody knows but you. But you know when you're alone with your heart that what's in there is ugly. Maybe it's not so much sin, but that you recognize that you're an outsider to the community. Maybe because you have trouble providing for your kids, or holding down a job, or staying in a marriage. Maybe because you're a single mother, or father, or grandmother, or grandfather. 
you feel like you are on the outside. Jesus' mission comes to you. To woo you and to win you to this God who has became flesh. If you notice this morning, all the songs we sang provide these two crazy truths about God. That he is utterly glorious and that he loves you in relationship. And John 1 starts by telling that the glory of God that was in the cloud and the flame, in lightning and thunder and earthquakes in the Old Testament, has been revealed most clearly in the man Jesus, who came flesh to come find you. Not to smite you dead, which is what we all deserve, but to woo you and to win you for himself. Jesus' mission goes to unexpected people. If you don't know him, if you have not received him, today, as we've been saying in Hebrews, hear him wooing you to himself. Come forward at the end during the time of prayer. Find out about how to get in a relationship with this God who loves the unlikely. But second of all, Jesus' mission, as we clearly see, recruits unexpected missionaries. Because not only does this Samaritan woman become a recipient of God's mission, she becomes a key participant in this mission. In John, the way that you talk about missions is through witnessing, through testimony. And by the end of the passage, John tells us that many came to Jesus because of this woman's witness. When Jesus declares to you, I am the king who's speaking with you, she leaves her task and returns to the village that has kicked her out for her sin to tell them, come and meet somebody who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the one that we're waiting for? Just like Nicodemus was the unexpected, excuse me, was the expected recipient of God's mission, and the Samaritan woman is the unexpected recipient, this Samaritan woman is also an unexpected participant in God's mission. In fact, if you're reading John, you know that Philip, one of the twelve that Jesus chose, has also witnessed. He was witnessed to uh, his, his family member Nathaniel. And he says the same thing that, that this woman says, come and see, come and see Jesus. But the chosen Jewish man, as a witness, gets one guy. The outcast, sinful, slutty Samaritan brings in the whole village. In fact, there's some irony here because the disciples have been hanging out in the Samaritan village all day. And all they come back with is food. But the Samaritan woman brings everyone she knows. She brings everyone she knows. And they come to know Jesus. And by the end of the story, they're saying, this is the Savior of the world. You know, sometimes we forget that in Jesus' earthly ministry, people didn't say stuff like that about him very often. Late in the game, Peter's like, well, maybe he's the Christ. Right? At the end, people are like, "Uh, I believe, you're resurrected, but I'm still kind of doubting. And a town full of bad guys, right here at the beginning... This is the king, the savior of the world. Her witness is effective not because she's expected, but because she has encountered Jesus. And he uses her story. All she says is, this guy told me everything I ever did. And everybody in the village knows what she's been up to. Right? They're like, he told you what? Did he tell you that part about, did he know about so-and-so? 
And they stream out of the village. Who is this guy? You know? And, and so the second thing I want to say is that uh, God invites and requires that all of us who have received his mission become participants. You know, sometimes uh, we might think that we're down with God, but we don't see ourselves as participants. Maybe you say, like, me and God are cool, you know. He didn't have any problem with me, I have any problem with him. Prayed that prayer a long time ago. I'm good. Or maybe you're looking at something that you feel like you want to get more involved and you feel God sort of tugging on your heart. But you're like, you know, I'm pretty busy right now. I've got a lot of things in the way. And however you frame it, maybe you know in your heart that you've divided up the idea of being a Christian from being on mission. Now, I need to make clear here, when I say being on mission, I don't just mean going to people and telling them about Jesus, because that's not the only thing the king is about. This passage makes clear that it's the king who shows up. And in, in, in Israel's faith, in the Christian faith, when the king shows up, he brings his kingdom and he puts everything to right, and he fixes everything, and he makes all things new, and he restores everything to the way that it's supposed to be designed. So mission isn't just about knocking on doors and about handing out tracts. It's about saying to the world, with our words and our actions, this is what it's like when God's on the throne. Mission is that big. But what I'm telling you is that if you're trying to stay out of it, if you're trying not to be a participant... You might not have been a recipient. Uh, Justin, last week, man, gosh, I was like so jealous and like scared when pre- Justin preached last week. It was so good. I was like, ah, i got to go next. I wish they'd let me go first. Um, and he gave that brilliant analogy. He said, if you make a cake without eggs, at the end of the day, you might have an interesting concoction, but what you do have is you don't have a cake. And what he went on to tell us is, if you try to put a bunch of things together in Christian community and prayer's not one of them, you might have something interesting, but you don't have a church. And what I'm telling you is, if you try to put together a bunch of activities and beliefs and orientations towards God, but you don't include being on mission as a participant in what he's doing, you might feel a little bit better, you might have less anxiety at night, but what you won't have is a Christian. Because Jesus, the great missionary, the Word became flesh, always recruits into mission those who receive the blessing of his mission. And the good news is that all that is required is an encounter. Philip knew a lot more about Jesus already by being a Jew than this Samaritan woman did. And he only got one guy. All the Samaritan knew was that she met a prophet who knew her and cared about her. And she brought the whole village. The reason why that works is because as witnesses, all we're doing is introducing people to King Jesus. At the end of the passage, it makes clear that Jesus' witness gets the village to Jesus. But at the end, what matters is not that the woman was a witness, but that they have heard and seen for themselves that Jesus is the King, the Savior of the world. In other words, we can all be witnesses of what we have encountered because all that's necessary is to help people encounter Jesus. Because ultimately it's not our witness, but His that makes all the difference. So it's pretty clear as we read the text that Jesus' mission 
uh, goes to unexpected people like this Samaritan, it's pretty clear that Jesus' mission recruits unexpected missionaries. But thirdly, it's clear that Jesus' mission has an unexpected purpose. And this may not jump quite off the page as clearly, so let's talk about it. When I uh, first got excited about Jesus' mission as a young person, and all the way to today, as I have sought and my family has sought to understand our lives in these terms, it was really easy for me to see myself as a participant in God's mission because I genuinely believed that God needed me, and most of the time still do. After all, I've got lots of gifts and abilities. I have some pieces of paper on the wall. I'm willing to do what those bad Christians out there aren't doing. God's pretty lucky to have me on the team. Not so hard for the Nicodemuses in the room like myself to see ourselves as missionaries, as participants. But what's interesting is that right out of the gate in John, it tells us that people were coming to Jesus and that Jesus didn't trust them. And it it tells us in, in 2.25, there was a reason why he didn't trust them, because he had no need for anyone to be a witness concerning him. In other words, John makes clear to me, which I need to know desperately, and to you, God doesn't need your help. He does not need your participation on this mission. It is not because of the Samaritan or Nicodemus's anything that they contribute. So why witness? Why are we invited? Why are we uh, busy with all this stuff? If God can do it, if he can reach the poor and lift up the marginalized and proclaim justice for the oppressed, if he can bring people into his kingdom and start new communities of healing, if he can deal with my sin and my shame and my guilt, why am I being brought in at all? What's the point? Right? Well, the key comes in these words towards the end. The disciples were urging to him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. They said, has anyone given him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do not say there are yet four months and then the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see. The fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is uh, receiving wages and gathering uh, fruit for eternal life. Up till now, this is familiar territory. Yes, yes. Ask the Lord to send out workers. Yes, God needs people to get the stuff out of the field. Send me, Lord. Yes, here am I. Send me. Right? We get this, right? But why? Why are the reapers being sent into the field? It says very clearly, so that the one who sows and the one who reaps may rejoice together. And then Jesus says, others have done the hard work, but you enter into their labor. Now, scholars are are confused at this point. Say, who are these others who've done the hard work? Some say it's the Old Testament saints. Some say, well, maybe it's the woman herself. She's just been recruited as a missionary. Maybe it's John the Baptist. You know who I think it is? I think it's Jesus and the Father who sent him. You see, when Jesus says others have done the hard work, that word that he uses, which he only uses one other place in all of John, is the same word that he uses to describe Jesus' exhaustion at the well. In other words, when Jesus shows up at the well, John tells us, because Jesus had exhausted himself through work, coming to this place where he will woo the woman, 
right? He asks for a drink. And here it says, others have done the exhausting work, and you have entered into their labor. Now why? Why has Jesus and the Father invited us to reap with them? It's because it is so that they who sowed, who did the hard work, may rejoice together, may be with us in rejoicing, who do the easy part of walking through the field and gathering what God Himself has done. Do you see that? Uh, this past week, I, I helped, um, uh, some of you were with me, we, we, we helped uh, uh, Pi Boaz uh, move homes. And uh, I, I brought my son, Isaiah, who's four. And uh, he was only in the way. And uh, he'd be upstairs and he'd be like, Daddy, help me carry this pillow. I'm like, boy, you can carry a pillow yourself. Like, no, Daddy, I need your help. So sometimes, instead of carrying like a big heavy thing like Daniel, I'd be carrying like one side of a little pillow. Why did I want Isaiah to come help me in the work? Was it because I needed him? It's because I wanted to be with him. It's because I longed to see his face light up when his dad invited him to do something with him. It's because at the end of the day, I wanted to put my arms around his shoulder and say, it's tiring to do hard work, isn't it, son? It's because I wanted to rejoice with him together in the work. And that's why Jesus invites you as his children, in fact, requires you as his children, to get in the field with him. Not because he needs you, but because he wants to be with you in joy. John tells us in chapter 2 that when he went, Jesus went to a wedding of some poor folk who couldn't afford enough wine for the party, that Jesus made more and better wine than anybody in that village could drink for a week. He made, he made wine flow out of the pots because he's the one who brings the party. But what John 4 tells us is, if you want the wine of the party, get in the workplace with God. If you want to drink deep of the joy that Jesus, bring, that Jesus brings, take him as co-worker. See him as the boss. Get in the field. You know, there's a book came out. It's called Tribe. I haven't read it, um, but it's it's a book about how um, uh, I, I listened to an any uh, I listened to an NPR interview, which is what uh, not smart people do to be smart. Uh, uh, and, and in the interview, they they were talking about how uh, what is it about military people who go over? They do these horrible things. They have these horrible lives, and then they come back to our society and like I kind of wish I was back over there. And, and as they were talking about, they were saying, you know, in, in the field, they're in these tight-knit groups. They're, 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 they're sold out. They're, they're, on, they're on an attack. They've got to get each other's backs, right? And then they come over here, and everybody lives by their own white picket fence, and it's kind of mine and yours. And somewhere, I don't remember if it was the author or the interviewer or someone who called in, but they said, those guys are on a mission, and it gives purpose to their lives. And Jesus is telling us that there is a mission There is a work that brings meaning, that brings everything together, and that that's where joy is. And you know, some of us, like, uh, some of us are are, are on, on the wrong mission. And we're looking for joy in all the wrong places. Right? So maybe you're on a mission to like, get the most stuff for yourself. Or to be the best in your field. You know? Maybe you're struggling, uh, maybe you're a young dude trying to make your way in the world. And you're just trying to, like, your mission is to get enough respect so you won't be bothered. Maybe, maybe your mission is to find someone who will complete you. 
And Jesus stands and says, Hey, get out of those fields and come where the real work is. Because I'm here and I want to rejoice with you in it. So if, if, if you're sitting here wondering as a Christian, why doesn't your life have meaning? Why doesn't it have purpose? Why do you feel out of sorts? I want to suggest to you that some of you, the answer is, get out of the field of your mission and join Jesus in the field of His mission because He's waiting for you there. And when we choose other fields, we find ourselves far from Him. But there's another part of this, and, 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 and it's this part that I think it, many of you at Downtown Church, I, I want you to hear. Because many of you have said yes to God's mission. And many of you have entered into that mission in costly ways. Uh, many of you are school teachers who came to serve in failing schools and to be a witness for the Lord and to be a part of flourishing. And you find yourself day in and day out in a place where no one likes you and no one respects you and no one cares. And your parents don't understand what the heck you're doing. And your kids don't understand what the heck you're doing. And your boss doesn't understand what the heck you're doing. And society is asking you to fix children in 10th grade who didn't know how to read. And you're burnt out and you're tired and you're exhausted and you're wondering, what's the point? Some of you work for Christian service organizations. And, and you had lofty ideals like me of like coming and making God's good news for the poor known. Of seeing people come to faith, but also people come to wholeness. And what's actually happened is you've watched the people that you love make the same stupid mistakes over and over again. And if you're honest, you've watched yourself become more and more angry, embittered, disgusted. Sometimes with the people you serve, and definitely with yourself. And you're wondering, what's the point? Some of you are raising children that aren't your own. Maybe you're the grandmother. Maybe uh, you've adopted them. Maybe you're fostering them. Some of you are raising those children in very difficult neighborhoods where the entire flow of the community, the way to go with the flow, I mean, you, you feel like you're under attack from the gangs, from the violence. It's like a black hole, and you can feel these children falling into it. And you've said, I'm going to stay here, and I'm going to be here for these children, and I'm going to raise them in the nurture of the image of the Lord. And they're doing the same stupid stuff that you see everybody else doing. And you're wondering, what's the point? And you find yourself angrier and more upset and more fatalistic about how things just aren't working. Some of you are employees who are trying to work hard and honor bosses who aren't treating you fairly so that you can provide for families that don't understand why there's not enough all the time. Some of you are bosses trying to figure out how to treat employees fairly who seem to just want to get what they can from you and you can't figure out how to make their lives better. Many of you in all sorts of areas are on mission. You are out there. You are struggling and you're wondering, what is the point? Why am I here? Does it matter? Is this just making me more and more embittered and angry? Some of you are, are people um, of color here. African Americans or other minorities. And you came here because you wanted to be a part of racial reconciliation and the gospel making the beloved community. And you love it. And you love guys like me. But then sometimes like, what's wrong with Mike? Why doesn't he understand? Sometimes you hear the stuff that we say and you're like, are you serious? Sometimes you read stuff on Facebook and you're like, are you kidding me? Right? Sometimes you're like, I, I left the church where that got me for this? And you're wondering, does this make any difference? Some of you are serving the church and have served the church and have given your life for the church. And the church has hurt you. And if it was a family, it didn't always feel like a safe one. 
And you're saying, Michael, all that mission stuff is fine for the pulpit, but it doesn't work out in the pew. Life is hard in this field. And I want to suggest to you that there are are two things that this passage tells you right now. And one is that the reason that you're there is to meet Jesus. And he doesn't promise that the work will work, but he promises that he will be with you in it in joy. That when you show up at that school and the kid cusses you out and flips the desk over, that when that child that you're trying to raise lies and slips out of the back of the house, that when the person in the workplace uh, disrespects you again, that when it gets harder and harder and people still don't understand you, it still doesn't make sense, that the promise is not that it'll get better, but the promise is that he'll be there with you in joy. That there is wine from Jesus that is only offered to you in this field and in this place. And I would challenge you and exhort you and encourage you that as you go into this difficult, important work, week in and week out, to look, first and foremost, to meet Jesus there. Right there in the place of pain. Right there in the place of suffering. Right there with the sweat on your brow. That Jesus is alongside you in a way that He isn't anywhere else. The other Hebrews says, let us go to Him outside the camp. It's hard outside the camp. People are suffering outside the camp. But that's where Jesus is. Enjoy with you. And the second thing I want to tell you is you will never be able to do that. You will never be able to meet Jesus in the work. It will be one long, relentless you show that ends in despair and suffering unless you get this. The only reason why there's joy in the field is because he did the hard work. The only reason why there's joy in that classroom or in your family or in your neighborhood or at your place of work or in this church is because the Jesus who exhausted himself and ended thirsty at the well is the same Jesus who ended exhausted and thirsty on the cross, dying for you, for your sins. The same Jesus who promises a white harvest out there is the Jesus who laid down his life and took it back up again and stood in a garden as the gardener and breathed on you and said, As the Father send me, so send I you. The only way that this mission is not one unrelenting agony is if you meet Jesus because he's done the work. A few years ago, I was at Advance, and I, I was doing something really cool. Uh, and it was really good work, and everybody knew it was good work, and everybody was excited about it. And It took a lot of work, and I was pretty proud of myself. And I spent about a year sitting on this program, and it got started. And about halfway through, uh, we, we'd have these classes on Monday night. And um, I, couldn't, I couldn't eat on Mondays. I couldn't sleep after class. I was just like one relentless wreck. And by God's grace, I was also taking a class in the spiritual discipline. So for the first time in a while, I was actually sitting still with Jesus. And it was like he shone a light on my soul and I realized, I am doing this for me. I need these people to succeed for me. I am here to prove that I matter and grind out in this field and wrench some fruit out of this field so I can put it on the wall and make sure that I count. And this passage came to mind and I was reminded that the only work worth doing is the work that Jesus has already done. And he invites you into it as grace. Don't ever, ever, ever buy the lie that God's grace is salvation and the work that you do out there is some, something else. The fact that you get to be involved in that classroom, in that kid's life, in that poor community, and in that workplace is nothing more than God's grace and in inviting you to be with Him in the fields that are white for the harvest. And it is only when we remember it's His field, He's done the hard work. And He's invited us to enter into it to run into the tree and see an apple fall off every now and again, that we can find meaning and purpose. 
Uh, I'll close with this. When I was 15 or 16, this would be a surprise to some of you, I was like 80% convinced I was going to be a rock star. Like 80%. And uh, I, I know that that's surprising to everyone, including me. Um, and uh, what was I thinking? <clears throat> Definitely have the body for it, though. That's the good part. Um, and because I thought that I might be a rock star, I played all the time. All the time. Practice, 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 practice. Didn't sound very good. My parents were like, turn it down. You know, I mean, it was just like this kind of obnoxious hobby for several years. But I was at it all the time because I really thought I was going to be a rock star. And uh, I thought I had to work at it to get it to yield its rock star status. Now, if somebody had come to me and said, you know what, Mike? I can guarantee that one day you will be a rock star. You know what I would not have done? I would not have stopped playing. I would have gotten on with it. I would have hit those scales twice as hard. I would have spent even more nights in the little room above my friend's garage making terrible music because I would know and have the confidence that one day I was going to be a rock star. Here's the good news. One day, Jesus will finish the work. One day, the gardener who rose from the grave at the end of John, who sent us out as the Father sent him, will stand in a new heavens and a new earth where there's no more sin and no more pain. And everything works. The fields are indeed ripe for the harvest. And they will continue being ripe all the way until the Lord of the harvest stands and says, It's done. It's time for the feast. And when we know that, when we know that it's his work, his sure work, that whatever's going on in your classroom or in your home and you're in your workplace is one day going to come out on the right side, even if you never live to see it, then we can say, glory to God who's done the hard work. Now let's get to it. Because he wants to meet us in joy there. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the Lord of the harvest. And we know that most of us have spent some combination of either working for other gods in other fields or trying to earn it in yours. Jesus, you know that our pride and our anxiety and our fears all get in the way of us standing in the places that you've called us simply to be with you and to welcome the work that you have already done. Jesus, I pray, we, we need you, Jesus, to crucify those other gods and those other fields in our hearts, to crucify our need to be the one who sows, and to raise in our hearts people who are willing and ready to simply enter the work that you have done in joy as we meet you. Jesus, would you do that in our lives and would you use even now this offering as we bring it to you to be a part of entering into the work that you've done? The money that we put in the plate is a gift from you. It comes from you and it goes back to you. And it's a part of this mission and joy that you've called us to. So we ask that you would give us willing, generous hearts, willing, generous lives that enter the fields with you and find you the Lord of the wine, the Lord of the harvest, they're waiting to celebrate with us. Jesus, we ask all of these things in your holy name. Amen.